0: Wall Street Journal reporter Catherine Clark in her book Billionaire's Row admits, quote, her motivation for writing this book was that as a reporter, I can't help but observe characters who've made the New York real estate world so dynamic are dying off. A dying breed of New York real estate kingpins who took big, big swings and risk it all. Catherine Clark's publisher describes on the cover of the book The Focus Tycoons, High Rollers and the epic race to build the world's most exclusive skyscrapers all located near Central Park South in Manhattan Catherine Clark how did you get from Northern Ireland Trinity College to a book about Billionaire's Row?
1: There were a lot of steps in between, I would say. Uh, and to be totally honest, it all started with a boy who I followed to New York. <laughs> As is probably the case with a lot of, um, a lot of people, if they're honest. Uh, but when I, I, I came over and went to grad school in New York and I was gonna stay for a year and then as happens with many New Yorkers, they get hooked on the city and they stay. And one of my first jobs was working for a trade publication called The Real Deal, which covered the real estate industry. And I thought it was gonna be one of those temporary things I would do for six months and it would be boring, and then I'd find something else. And I just fell head over heels in love with the real estate beat. Uh, it just was this sort of lens through which you could write about so many different things um you know from architecture to design and money and power and influence and politics and uh, i just never got tired of it and so uh, 10 or 12 years later i'm still writing about new york city real estate
0: well as you know there are a lot of irishmen in this country uh my grandparents great-grandparents were irish the reason i bring it up is to compare would they build these huge skyscrapers in northern ireland ireland uh, or for that matter in dublin
1: they sure would not (laughs) in my hometown i'd say probably the highest building is maybe eight stories and Uh, When I lived in Dublin, I'd say it was something similar. But they're a lot more precious there about their skyline and permissions. And um, I don't think there's really the appetite there for the same kind of development um, as you see in New York. So I think it would be a very boring beat to cover in a lot of European countries.
0: Pick in the first part of your book. You have pictures of the skies, the five uh, big buildings at Tell us what they are and how, how how tall they are and how that compares with the world.
1: Sure. Uh, so basically my book is centered around this corridor, the center of which is sort of 57th Street between Park Avenue and Central Park West. Uh, and so there are five buildings and they vary in height from around a thousand feet to about 1,550 feet. Uh, And 1,550 feet, which is the newest building on the corridor that is technically the tallest, primarily residential building in the world. So I say primarily residential because there are some buildings in the Middle East, like the Burj Khalifa, for instance, which is taller, but it's not really a residential building. It more has office and retail, and there there happen to be a few apartments, but it's not really a condo tower per se. So one of the buildings on this corridor is, is technically the tallest residential in the world.
0: What's the time frame for all five of these buildings being built?
1: The book kicks off in 2008, um, which is when they were conceiving of the plans for some of these. But the first one really kicked off sales in 2011 um, and was began construction in 2010. And then the last one, the fifth building in the book, It just finished construction um, in October or so of last year, so it spans over a decade.
0: I know you write about a lot of characters and we'll get into that, but the thing that people always ask when you start talking about this is, do these buildings sway in the wind?
1: (laughs) Um, They all do. It's an inevitability. Um, You can't build a building this tall and this thin without some level of sway um it's just about the degree to which the developers are successful in mitigating that sway so they have all of these different techniques to limit how fast the building is swaying and how far the building is swaying so a lot of them have uh what you call in the real estate industry mass dampers which are enormous counterweights that you position at the top of the building and they're designed so that when the building sways in one direction, they move in the other direction to mitigate that movement. Uh, and then some, they've also done other kind of quirkier things. Like there's a building at 432 Park, which is, has um, attracted some criticism for its swaying in recent years. Um, but they actually left gaps in the building so if you sort of look at it at night you'll see that there are three or four different sections of the building that are completely dark and that's because there are no windows there they left those floors completely open to the elements so that wind could go through sort of like if you cut a hole in the sail of a boat Um, and so that's supposed to mitigate the movement as well.
0: This book is one of the first books I've ever read where I almost said you gotta have it in your hand to understand what you're writing about, so I'm going to try for people that have never been to New York and have never seen these buildings to get you to describe things first and foremost what is what is Central Park?
1: What is central park uh, and why is it, and Cent- why
0: is it so important?
1: Central Park is probably the largest public amenity in New York City it's an enormous green space at the center of Manhattan you know you're in this crazy urban metropolis that never sleeps and you know a million people and then within a small walk from a lot of people there are acres and acres and acres of green space and reservoirs and ponds and hills and it's it's majestic.
0: And these buildings sit right there at the southern part of it. And why is that? What, what's what's uh, about 57th Street and 59th?
1: Well, there are a lot of factors in that. So 57th Street was never seen historically as a luxury corridor. I mean, it's flirted with luxury over the years. And I think in the 70s, Aristotle Onassis built a very luxurious condo there. But historically, it's been seen as kind of schlocky. (laughs) But in, you know, after the, you know, last financial crisis, there was this huge wave of foreign investment into New York, and developers started to get this idea that you could build these super talls that might appeal to that set of buyers. And 57th Street was kind of perfect because of the zoning there. So, you were able to assemble all these parcels of land there. And if you could assemble enough and you could buy enough development rights, you could build as tall as you wanted. And so it was kind of the Wild West. You could could build whatever without having to run it past the city or get permissions and all of that. And so they were able to build as tall as they wanted and really capitalize on those views of Central Park in a way that they couldn't on the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side or any of those sort of traditional luxury and cleaves. What's
0: it what did it cost to build these buildings overall? I mean, what's an average the, the total cost of building them?
1: Billions of dollars. I mean if you look at say the tallest building on the corridor, the projected satellite of those condos initially was over four point four point 4. four billion dollars. And so you you can assume that at least a billion, a billion and a half was spent on constructing on it.
0: If people want to, they can get online on YouTube and find tours of these buildings done by real estate people. And I bring that up because have you been allowed to go into any of these buildings in preparation for this book?
1: I have been in all of them to varying degrees. Um, So there are a couple where, you know, the developer is more press friendly and has given me tours or the brokers have given me tours. The one that was the most challenging was one that's on uh, Central Park South. The address is 220 Central Park South. And it's been the most successful building on that corridor. Um, just the prices there have been completely insane. It was where uh, the hedge funder Ken Griffin bought a $240 million apartment, which was the record for the whole country. That was really hard to get into because the developer of that building really didn't want attention from the press. The idea was that he wanted that building to be so exclusive and, you know, velvet rope and you couldn't get in unless you had particular permissions. And so it took me a long time to convince people to let me in there. There, I think I ended up approaching the real estate agent for one of the people who had bought there and then was trying to resell their unit. And so she was able to sneak me in.
0: Ken Griffin's apartment at the top of this building?
1: It's actually not. It's actually in the middle of the building. Huh. So. Yeah. How
0: much did he pay for it?
1: $240 million.
0: What's it cost a month for association fees?
1: <laughs> I actually don't know the answer to that um, because it, I wasn't in the off-run plan, but suffice to say, it's many, many millions of dollars probably.
0: Did you talk to him?
1: i did not talk to him sadly i would love to he you know i write for the wall street journal as my day job and sort of tracking ken griffin has been you know a project for the last couple of years because he's been such an active acquirer of luxury real estate across the country he's spent hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, probably more than a billion dollars over the last couple of years on the best real estate in the country, whether it's in New York, Palm Beach, Chicago, um, London, he's been all over the place. So um, I feel like, you know, one of those dogs that tries to sniff the tree and the, the trail of, of someone.
0: How successful had these buildings been?
1: It's been extremely mixed. Um, so it really depended, to a large extent, on when they debuted in the market. So the story of the book really follows the story of the real estate cycle. So as we were coming, you know, out of the last recession, there was this huge boom in luxury real estate, particularly because of buyers from overseas. So lots of Russians, lots of Chinese people uh, came and bought up tons of real estate in Manhattan, and so. If you debuted then, if you debuted between, you know, 2011, 2014, you did well, you you got out safely, you made a lot of money. If you came in after that and tried to sort of capitalize on these trends after they had ended, you got in trouble. So there were a couple of buildings that really struggled if they were still trying to sell in 2017, 2018. And, you know, some of them are even still trying to sell today.
0: So how many of these buildings are full of people even after they bought these ha- apartments?
1: I think very few I mean I, there have been estimates of around forty percent for the buildings that are you know closer to being sold out. Um, but the, I mean the the fact of the matter is that a lot of these buildings appealed to people who were either looking for a place to stash their money they were. You know, folks from overseas who were maybe facing problems at home. They, you know, at the time in 2011, 2012, there was this huge housing bubble in China. Um, The yen was really strong against the dollar. So a lot of them just saw New York as this kind of safety deposit box for their money. And, you know, some people bought who'd never even set foot in those apartments. Um, And, you know then for even for Americans who bought the the chances that this is your you know singular home are extremely low at this price point if you're buying an apartment that's tens of millions of dollars the chances are you also have a home in Palm Beach and you also maybe have a home in Aspen and so maybe you're spending a couple months a year in New York
0: in the middle of writing your book you say this in the book that you all of a sudden got an email of about uh, was it michael stern i believe can you tell us that story
1: sure um so michael stern was this uh developer who you know i had been writing about real estate in new york for maybe five or six years when he emerged and he kind of came from nowhere the uh the trajectory of a developer in new york is usually pretty similar you'll start with smaller projects and you'll work your way up to bigger ones over time. And, you know, lenders will be more comfortable, you know, giving you a lot of money, lots of leverage as you sort of progress in your career and have some successes under your belt. Uh, but Michael Stern sort of came from zero to a hundred and, you know, 60 seconds. Um, so he had a project um, on West 18th Street in Chelsea called Walker Tower. And it was the redevelopment of a New York telephone company building into luxury condos. And it just debuted at the exact right time in the market. And the product was really nice and it flew off the shelves. And so with this singular project, he was able to, you know, jump into a much, much larger one on 57th Street with, you know, billions of dollars on the line. And no one really knew very much about him because he'd been around for such a short time. There was really very little scrutiny applied to his um, resume. And so his background was very much a mystery, and he was not crazy keen to talk about it. And so I was sitting, you know, at my desk one day writing my book, and I got an email from this very bizarre email address, michael I think it was Michael D. Stern criminal at gmail and he sort of, this person, I don't even know if it's a, he purported to be uh, someone who had done business with Stern somewhere along the line and just sent me this wad of information about his past and, you know, what was purported to be this private investigators report into him, which had been commissioned by one of his business partners, allegedly. And so I wasn't really sure what to make of it initially, but it was kind of a bizarre situation.
0: Did you ever use the material?
1: You know, I tried to replicate the report with my own reporting. And so I included what I was able to independently verify. But there were definitely parts of it that I did not include just because I couldn't, um, you know, cross the T's and dot the I's.
0: What impact did the change in the 2017 tax code uh, bill here in town have on this whole business of real estate in New York City?
1: I think less than people imagined that it would. I mean, when that happened, everyone was saying, you know, folks are going to be, you know, flying to Florida en masse and no one's going to want to live in New York anymore. And, I mean, people have run the, rung the bell on New York like that a million times before, but it always swings back. So there were a few months where deals slowed um, significantly, but then it came back. It was really not until the COVID crisis that we saw New Yorkers leave New York in a very real and more permanent way
0: Characters, you point out in your introduction that one of the best things about writing a book like this are the characters, so let's talk about some of them, and I'll just start with the first one is Gershon Swiatiki
1: Yes, better known as Gary Barnett
0: Gary Barnett Um, is his real name now, and why did he change his name?
1: You know, he we've never talked about it. He's, he's very, um, he's very happy to chat, but only about business. Um, he, he really doesn't like to get into his personal life very much. But I assume like many immigrants, it was probably a matter of, you know, adapting and fitting in and, um, you know, being successful in business. Um, but he's, he's such an interesting character. And I think kind of the billionaire's row narrative is best told through him because he was the one who got the ball rolling. So, you know, in 2008, when, you know, everything was falling apart, he had this site on 57th street that he wanted to develop and had already started to finance. And everyone told him, you know, you're going to have to stop. No, it's not going to happen. You're going to have to mothball this. Um, But he just plowed ahead. He just kept going. Um, and he found the money to build it even during the depths of the crisis. And so he was rewarded then when the market really came back. Um, he His building was the only luxury tower in the market at the time. And the sales were crazy. And then a few years later, he decides to try to do it again. So he tries to do Billionaire's Row Tower Part 2. And the market is just completely different at that time. And it, the second building is nowhere close to as much of a success as the first one so you know people say that his two buildings uh 157 and central park Tower, sort of serve as bookends for the cycle so you know he started billionaires row and then his second building might mark the end of it
0: how would you describe him
1: you know i don't like to have favorites but if i did have a favorite it would probably be him he uh, he's just very straightforward um You know, if you walk into a room with him and you have smart questions and you know what you're talking about and you've done your research, he'll answer anything. He is very, um, as as much as I can tell, very sort of honest and fair. And he will own his successes as much as his failures. You know, he will be the first to put his hands up and say, I really screwed up there. That was probably not the best idea. Um, And he's very clever. You know, he is seen as the master of assemblage so you know a lot of the developers that you might have heard of in new york um the reason that they're able to build what they are able to build is because they are very clever at cobbling together these complicated sites so you know for his first building on 57th street he he bought 22 different properties in order to to uh, piece together that um that site that was really special. So that means going to all these individual owners and talking to them independently and convincing them to sell and making the best price and not showing your hand too much. So he's extremely good at that. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation.
0: Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. What has happened during this time period when these buildings have been built, when some other apartment house was there and the people had to leave after it was bought? What, what happened? What, any kind of lawsuits come out of that?
1: there were yeah at 220 central park south which was the most successful building on the corridor i mentioned earlier um that that used to be the site of rent stabilized building so it, what does
0: that mean Rent stable? it
1: basically it basically means that, this, that the landlord can only put your rent up by a certain um percentage each year and that's controlled by the rent guidelines board in new york so they'll say you know this year, you can only put the rents up by 2% or whatever. So those people end up ultimately paying below market rates um, compared to other buildings in the city. Um, So there were some really interesting characters who lived in that building. Um, There was a guy I talked to uh, who um, used to live in the penthouse of this rent stabilized building, and it was kind of perfect because it had this incredible view of Central Park. And he would have these great parties there. But he wasn't paying very much for it at all. You know, he'd say, um, you know, people would hear I lived on Central Park South and they would think I was loaded. They would think I was so rich and sometimes I'd correct them and sometimes I wouldn't. Um, but he was a music producer um, and he used to produce music for Gloria Gaynor and Engelbert Humperdinck and a very interesting guy. But all of those people, um, he actually left before the lawsuits happened, but um, when the developer of 220 Central Park South bought that building, they basically told everyone, time for you to leave. <laughs> and you know, that's not really how things work in New York. If you want people to leave quickly, you're going to have to give them some money usually. Um, so they they all of the residents usually wind up getting a million, a million and a half dollars to go.
0: And they just get up and leave, would take the check with them and go somewhere else.
1: It was a bit more complicated than that there were lawsuits back and forth there were negotiations there was lots of bad blood lots of name calling but yeah eventually they took their million and a half dollars and they went
0: in each case of these five buildings and there i know there's some others across new york across manhattan but in these five buildings did they have to tear down a building in order to build these new buildings
1: yeah they had to tear. in the case of 220 they had to tear down that building but in the case of some of the others they had to tear down multiple buildings some of them i think were maybe eight to ten buildings very small low-rise structures you know which were more sort of characteristic of new york in a lot of ways you know there were little umbrella stores and um you know churches and all kinds of um all kinds of different buildings that that left to make way for these towers
0: where did gary barnett get his money
1: for 157, Gary Barnett got his money from the Middle East, so he wound up uh, making a deal with a Saudi Arabian outfit that was related to the government. Um, and the guy who, at the time, headed that organization, wound up getting uh, involved in the 1MDB scandal, the Malaysian sovereign Wealth Fund scandal, years later. He wasn't at the time that that Barnett did the deal with him. But, um, yeah, he got his money from the Middle East. And then for his second building, he got most of the money from China. Um, And he also raised uh, money on the Israeli bond market, which at the time was very popular with New York City developers because the money was a lot cheaper.
0: You say in your book that that, uh, Gary Barnett's an Orthodox Jew. Uh, Did you ever ask him uh, about getting money from... Uh, uh, Saudis, uh, just obvi- You know, for the obvious reason, did that come up in your conversation?
1: You know, it never did. But if I had to hazard a guess, I would say that he's just an incredibly practical person, and he'll take the money wherever it comes from at the best re- on the best terms. Um, you know, there are a lot of Jewish developers in New York City. I would say. Most of the successful developers in New York City happen to be Jewish. And there's a lot of money from the Middle East flowing through those projects. So I would say, in general, there's not a lot of objection there.
0: Which of the five buildings has the smallest base?
1: Uh, The one that Michael Stern built has the smallest base, 111 West 57th Street. Um, You know, though that building... There's only one apartment per floor, pretty much. When you get to the top levels, um, and so the configuration of it is kind of like a dumbbell. A dumbbell. So you've got your long living room on one end. You've got a series of bedrooms on the other end. And then the middle is basically taken up by the elevator banks. So it's that tight.
0: Do you have any idea what that footage is? I saw? I remember. Sixty feet in, in your book about something, but I don't know if that's the one for this building. That
1: sounds right to me, but I can't remember off the top of my head the, the width on all of them. Um, but yeah, it's an incredibly tight base. They had to drill, you know, these these caissons like thirty or sixty feet into the ground underneath the building just to make sure that it was not going to fall or sway. It was a very very complicated engineering challenge.
0: What about what about the stories? Uh, around elevators and how do they build these elevators that go to the 92nd floor?
1: So the the most famous elevator probably on the corridor is at 432 Park Avenue. Um, that building over the past year or two has been the subject of a massive lawsuit brought by the um, Board of Residents um, against the developer and in that lawsuit, they said, they basically accused the developer of malfeasance and you know said there were, I think it was 1,500 alleged instances where there were construction defects or design defects. Um, and one of the things that they alleged in particular was that the elevators in these buildings, or this building in particular, I should say, is dramatically impacted by the sway of the building. And so on a windy day, the elevators could not cope and they would get stuck for hours. Um, and I think it was, it all sort of hit home in a real way when the son, the teenage, I think he's a teenager, might be slightly older, son of one of the um, condo board members got stuck in the elevator for a really long time. So when I took a tour of the building, actually, not too long ago, that the elevators are beautiful. The the, um, the walls are all like brown leather or maize, and um, they were modeled after uh, the leather that the developer had seen on a yacht in Croatia. But they have this beautiful little bench seat inside of them, and it opens. And I, I asked the, um, the residence manager, you know, what's, what's in there? What do you keep in there? And it was, a bottle of water and an oxygen mask which did not give me a lot of confidence
0: harry macklow another one of your characters yes i mean harry- let me let me just start because this when i read it i said i i can't believe this and there's a picture in the book that he put a picture on the side of 42 foot picture of himself and his either new wife or girlfriend on the side of one of this building that he built and for what reason
1: well it was to celebrate their engagement um but a lot of you know new york city reporters as cynical as we are uh, i think it was the poster the times called that gesture the height of spite because at the time all of that was happening Michel had just left his wife of, I believe, 60 years uh, for his French mistress. Um, and so they were, he and his ex-wife are, were locked in this very contentious divorce battle that had gotten very dirty. And so putting the picture of him and his new wife on the building was seen as a sort of a spiteful gesture that he would say that was not the case.
0: How much younger was his second wife?
1: Actually, not that much younger. I'm going to give him some credit. She, was, I, think she <laughs> I think she was only like 10 or 20 years younger. It wasn't like she was, you know, a, a youngin'. Did, um, did he
0: ever sue his son, Billy?
1: He did, yeah. He sued his son, Billy. It was, you know, the the book kicks off as he is trying to... Harry Michael was this very iconic figure in New York City real estate. And in 2007, he made this enormous bet on the commercial real estate market and he bought seven office buildings and he bought them at the height of the market. And then he couldn't refinance and it was a whole disaster. And he ends up having to hand them all back to the bank. And he sort of became the poster child for the real estate crash in New York. And at that time, his son was the president of his company and allegedly had advised him against taking on all of this debt and all of this risk. And so it drove this you know, wedge between the two of them. And it also drove a wedge between him and his ex-wife, who was his you know, wife at the time, uh, because he had apparently promised her he would never make a personal guarantee on a loan after he'd lost some buildings in the 90s. But then he had made a personal guarantee on some of these loans um, in 2007. And so she saw that as breaking a promise and embarrassing the family. And so as the book begins, their family is in this like state of disarray.
0: And where and where is he from? Uh, And he's
1: he's from New Rochelle. He grew up in New Rochelle,
0: up north of New York City. Uh, And what's he like? Did you meet him in this process and would he talk to you?
1: Yes, I talked to him numerous times. He is, I would say, by far the most colorful character in the book. He is you know if you think of Gary Barnett he lives very modestly actually you know for someone who is a tastemaker for the not 0.1% he lives a relatively modest life himself but Harry Michael is sort of the opposite he is you know wearing designer loafers and pashminas and he's you know cruising off the coast of Croatia on his yacht um, and he's very, very charming. You know, he will tell. You know, if you if you Google him, you'll find a, a video on YouTube. Um, there's a channel called Old Jews Telling Jokes, and he <laughs> he goes on and tells like a funny story about his rabbi. You know, he tells all these all these jokes about his rabbi and his wife, and how you know she's a the ball and chin and. He's very funny. He makes up little ditties. He, you know, will try to, you know, romance everyone he meets. He's a really fun person.
0: What happened with the lawsuit with his son?
1: It eventually got settled. Basically, um, the the argument that he and his son had over 432 Park, which is the building that's in the book, um, was kind of the last straw for their relationship. Um. And so Billy, his son, ends up going off and starting his own company and leaving um, the family company. And so they have this huge argument over the email addresses, like who owns the demand name for macclo.com and like who owns the family brand? Um, and so Harry ends up suing him for $300 million, but it, it quickly got settled.
0: What did his wife get? Linda. In the
1: divorce? Yes. <laughs> probably a billion dollars or more. They had what was considered in New York to be one of the most legendary art collections imaginable. Um, and it was sold in two separate lots at Sotheby's last year or the year before. And it set a record. It set an auction record for Sotheby's. They'd never sold as much art in one setting. Um, so, yeah, she made a, she made a lot of money off of the divorce.
0: How many of these developers live in their buildings?
1: You know, it's really a mixed bag. Gary Barnett does have an apartment at 157, but it, he does not live there full time. I think he just lives there when he's in New York. Um, there there are rumors that the developer of 220 Central size lives there, but I've never been able to verify that. He's not very press friendly. Um, but I would say not that often, actually. I mean, if it's your day job, if it's, You know, a lot of times, you know, regardless of the particular circumstances, condo buyers have problems with the units that they buy, whether they're major or minor, um, you know, whether they're legitimate or not, people typically when they move into a new building have some complaints about that. And I think the last thing you want as a developer is to walk out of your door every day and have people say, hello, Mr. Roth, you know, what's wrong with my window frame or, you know, why did you put these cupboards in? They're not working, or, you know, whatever. But I, I think, you you know, there's maybe an element of, you you want some distance from from your customer.
0: Which of these buildings has the most apartments in them? And how many of these apartments in all five of these buildings are just one floor?
1: So it, it varies as you move up the building. So a lot of the buildings will have, you know, two or three units on the lower floors. And then at the very tippy top, most of them have one apartment per floor or even apartments that span multiple floors, like Ken Griffin's apartment has i believe four floors um so that was a completely custom situation um but they they range i mean there are buildings that have fewer than a hundred units and there are buildings that have more than two hundred units, which is very tricky when you're trying to sell apartments for you know, fifty, sixty million dollars a piece because there are only so many billionaires to go around. There are not, you know, an unlimited number of ultra wealthy people in the world actively looking to buy Manhattan real estate. And so as the cycle has continued, you see, you know, the demand has has dropped off and the discounts are, are going into effect and um yeah, the the buyer pool has maybe not been exhausted but is dwindling
0: a very funny story at least for me was the story uh and you can explain the whole thing about the prince and anyway the 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 punchline of the story is hilarious but tell us that story uh, looking for an apartment and people always suspect you suggest about somebody really has the money and they really are serious
1: sure um so one of the developers of 111 West 57th Street He's a very funny guy, and he said that he was sitting in his office one day, and he gets a call from a broker friend. The broker friend says that he had he's he's with the the prince of some big oil country. He said, and you know he's he's interested in talking to you about One Eleven West Eighty Seventh Street. <laughs> and so Kevin Maloney, the developer, he's like, I don't know. You know, I've heard. The story a million times everyone's a prince everyone's a billionaire you know then they turn out to just be you know a grifter but he says bring him over anyway i'm not doing anything so the guy comes over and he's flanked by these two security guys with guns allegedly with the tattoos up to their necks is how he described them uh, and he comes in and he offers kevin this too good to be true deal uh at 111, he basically offers to buy a stake in the project for more than they more than the money they've already. Put
0: Let in me Europe. interrupt just to say though, he arrived in three Cadillac Escalades. There are three different in with the security. Yes. That's an important yeah, that's important part of the story. That's an important
1: point. Yeah, sorry, but I forgot that. Yes, three black Escalades. They arrive in. So anyway, they they're finishing up their conversation, and uh, the guy says to uh, Kevin. Oh, by the way, I'm I'm looking for an apartment in New York that I can stay in when I'm here, and so Kevin still has two units remaining at Walker Tyra, which is the building that he and Michael Stern started their relationship with, and they're asking like 50 something million dollars a piece. And he says, I'll you know I'll take there if you want, but they're really expensive. The guy says, No, I wanna I wanna look at them. So they walk over to the building like the guys with guns leading the way and uh they go in and the guy the guy walks into the apartment he strolls into the living room he doesn't even look at the bedrooms and he says how much and kevin says i think it was 54 or something like that he said oh would you take 50 Says yes and so kevin Kevin said you know i really thought this was too good to be true i thought i was never going to hear from this guy again but you know i said sure why not and so they they leave and then as they're walking back to kevin's office uh, he notices that there's been one of those, you know, yellow boots applied to one of the Escalades for failure to pay parking tickets.
0: The Denver boot.
1: Yes. And so he looks at the guy and, said, and he sort of thinks to himself, your grift is up. <laughs> you know, this is proof that you have no money at all. Um, <laughs> but he said the the guy piled into t- the remaining two Escalades. him and his security guys piled into the remaining two escalates and just drove off and just left the third one there in perpetuity. He said months later it was still there with you know parking <laughs> tickets piling up and the mirrors had been peeled off. But the guy followed through on the apartment. He bought the apartment for $50 million, and at the time it was a record for south of 34th Street.
0: In so in other words, giving up a, a Cadillac Escalade didn't mean a thing to him.
1: Clearly not.
0: <laughs> Steve Roth, and you say he's bare-knuckle fighter of the bunch.
1: Yeah, Steve Roth is the one I know the least about only because in my 12 years of writing about New York City real estate, he has never once consented to a press interview with me or I don't believe anyone else either. Um, but he's an interesting character. I mean, he was, people might have heard of him actually because he was supposed to be on the economic council that Donald Trump was setting up when he was president. The two of them are apparently reasonably close friends. Um and they co-own a couple of buildings, including one in San Francisco and one in New York. Um but yeah, he's he's seen as he's more of an office developer. He's really known for, you know, developing class A office space and he he doesn't really dabble in condos. The only reason he did with this one apparently was because his office overlooked the site. Um and so he would look at it every day and think, that'd be a really nice residential building. And it was more so it became more of a hobby project for him really than, you know, something that is core to his business philosophy. Um, but then he treated that building like his own personal country club. So, um, you know, there were tons of foreign buyers flowing into all these other buildings, but he really wasn't keen on having you know, Russian buyers or, um, you know, people that he didn't know. And so it became this like exercise and pleasing him, you know, people would come to see the sales office and he would sort of casually pop in to say hello but they would get the feeling that they were being assessed by him personally Um, and so I I mean as a result actually that building has retained its values in a way that none of the others have
0: in an epigraph at the beginning of your book you quote from the Bible Genesis and I want to just read it it's very brief but get your reaction as to why you did this Come, let us build ourselves a city, with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Why that? Why that quote? I mean, it may be fairly obvious, but why did that strike you as something you wanted to use?
1: I think because so much of what drove my interest in this topic was the motivations of these developers. Um you know they they're all inherently very different people and live their lives very differently but there's something fundamentally similar about them and i think part of that is number 1 sort of an immunity to levels of stress that most of us would buckle under I mean, I think if if you or I were going to bed with billions of dollars of debt hanging over our heads and, you know, no immediate way to pay it off and the market, you know, crumbling under our feet, we wouldn't sleep, but they sleep. You know, it's a a level of comfort with risk that I can't comprehend. Um, And then the other thing is sort of an idea that they have run their own legacy. I mean, For so many of these developers, the financials didn't wind up panning out as they had hoped. But like one of them said to me, at the end of the day, this building will outlive me. You know, my my kids will see it. My grandkids will see it. People will be able to look up at it maybe 50 or 100 years from now and I will have built it. Um, So this idea that you're leaving this permanent mark on the city and that that means something was interesting to me.
0: How many of these apartments have been resold since they their original owner?
1: It depends on the building. Um, at two twenty Central Park South, quite a lot have been resold. Um, some of the newer buildings, we haven't had time to get to that yet. But um, and then at the four thirty two Park, which is the building with all the alleged construction issues, there are a bunch of people trying to resell their units, but thus far have been unsuccessful and have been you know slashing prices as a result.
0: Who is the lady named Abramovich and the story Uh, behind what she did when she was unhappy with her building?
1: Oh, so she, um, you know, I've been trying to figure out for a long time if she's related to Roman Abramovich, but I can't, I can't figure it out. Uh, But she uh, was the first resident, I guess, at 432 to raise the alarm about these alleged construction defects. So I guess she had been complaining behind the scenes for a long time and felt like no one was paying attention to her. And there were leaks in her apartment and damage and all of these things. So eventually, she just went to the New York Times um and told them, you know, all about these problems. And I think she called it the tower of hell or something like that. And so people couldn't believe that someone who lived in the building and, you know, thus had a vested interest in the resale values there would you know, so widely publicized the problems of the building. I think Harry Macklow, who's the developer of that building, called it, you know, a scorpion biting its own back. Um, and so she she, you know, probably put a huge dent in the values of all of the apartments of her neighbors. So I'm sure she's not super popular.
0: Was she right?
1: I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's a major he said she said, I think uh, the developers of the building have said, you know, there are some legitimate problems, they've been working to fix them. But they allege that, you know, the board hasn't given them the access they need to fix the remaining ones. So it's, I mean, I, I, I think there are some legitimate problems, whether they rise to the level of what was alleged in the lawsuit is a little bit more unclear.
0: In the first part of your book, you have your dedication, and it's to Mum. That's we call Mom here, as you know. Dad and John. And uh, where are your parents? And I should I assume John is your husband?
1: John is my husband. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Where Where did you Where did you meet John?
1: You know, we actually met in high school. Uh, We went to the same high school in Northern Ireland. Uh, And so we went on our first date when I was 13. He took me to go see a Nicolas Cage movie called The Long Came a Spider. (laughs) And then he took me to McDonald's for a McFlurry. And we never looked back.
0: So you you say you came to New York originally for a boy. Is that boy John?
1: It is, yeah. He really wanted to move to New York uh, since he was a kid. I had never had any desire to live in New York at all or live in America at all. Uh, but he really wanted to come here and he convinced me to come for a year. He said, so I, I was applying to go to um, grad school for journalism in London and he said, try New York, just apply to a couple places in New York and we'll see You know, if you get in. And you know, I came and then one year turned into, I think it's 14 in Koyntung.
0: What kind of work does he do?
1: Uh, he works in tech. He has a an ad tech startup.
0: And now that you're working out of Manhattan... Where do you live? I don't mean the address, but what part do you live downtown or do you live outside in the suburbs?
1: I live in Lower Manhattan.
0: What do you think of that? W- looking at these, the the amount of richness that you know, the and you you talk about it in your book, and some of it's greed. What's your reaction to all that money that's up there?
1: You know, we have that debate quite frequently at the Wall Street Journal offices. Um, I have, you know, been historically of the opinion that New York is this, you know, evolving organism. And, you know, as the years go by, your favorite restaurant is going to close and your, um, you know, your doctor's going to move away. And, you know, that place you loved is going to be replaced with a skyscraper. And that's just what you signed up for. That's just the nature of the beast. Um, and so I, I, you know enjoy the architecture i enjoy the ambition i think the world would be a little bit more of a sad place if it wasn't for these huge characters um but i also see the flip side of it and i see that you know we have to be careful that we're not replacing too much rent stabilized housing people need a place to live you know new york needs to stay affordable for everyone it's a delicate balance
0: where are mom and dad
1: they're still in Northern Ireland.
0: What part of Northern Ireland?
1: Uh, not too far outside of Belfast, County Antrim, um, you know, halfway between Belfast and the the Northeast coast.
0: And how would you compare living in Ireland with living in New York City?
1: You know, I would live in Northern Ireland for sure if I could do my job there. I, I love it there, it's so beautiful. Um, you know, maybe not in the winter, but for many months of the year, it's the perfect place to be. It's just that the professional opportunities do not exist for my career there, sadly.
0: One of the people that comes up in your book is Charlie Rose, the television personality's former partner slice girlfriend, Amanda Burden. Why is she in your book?
1: Oh, because she was the head of the... Um, Landmarks Commission uh, back when some of these projects were conceived. So she, uh, you know, she did an interesting thing, actually, because there were very few sites in that area that were subject to any kind of decision-making by Landmarks. But there was one building that was supposed to be a Billionaire's Row mega tower. It was designed by the architect Jean Nouvel. Um, and she had authority over it because they were requesting, I believe they were requesting a a zoning change, Um, but she, she locked 200 feet off of the top of it. She said it was too tall. She said that if you were going to be so tall, then you needed to be able to compete with buildings that were as tall in terms of your aesthetic And if you were as tall as the Empire State Building, then you should be as significant and as beautiful as the Empire State Building. And she didn't believe that this one was. And so she ordered that they take 200 feet off of the top, um, which basically, you know, disqualified them from the Billionaire's Row mega race.
0: What is it like being a developer in New York City, working with the New York City, the New York State, and the federal government?
1: I think they would say it's very, very difficult which is why they go to pains to try to avoid doing anything that requires city approval, because you can spend, you know, years and years going through city processes and you you don't end up getting the permission that you need to do something. So you've wasted all of that, you know, time and money. Um, And I think people would say that the, you know, the Department of Buildings, which, you know, uh, verifies all of your construction, um, permits and things, and very, very slow and labyrinthine. Um, so, yeah, I'd say it's a reasonably tense relationship between the city and developers, for the most part.
0: Is there any kickback money in the process from the from oh. the the uh, employees of the city?
1: I am sure there is. I mean, no one's fessing up to me, uh, but yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that does happen from time to time.
0: What in the world is air rights?
1: Air rights is so interesting as a concept to me. Uh, It's basically the undeveloped air above a building. So if you own a low-rise building and it's in a zoning district that would allow a building that's taller than yours, the air above your building up to that point is saleable. So if you have a three-story building, but you could legally build a 10-story building on that site, you can effectively sell those seven stories to to a buyer if they're within a a certain geographic parameter. So if you're a developer like Gary Barnett and you want to add another seven stories to your giant tower, you can go along and buy those seven stories essentially from your neighbor.
0: How much of that is involved in all these buildings we've been talking about?
1: A lot, pretty pretty much on every building. They've, They've done some component of that.
0: What kind of money is involved?
1: It really depends on how badly you need those air rights. So if you're in very early in the process and you know you you've only secured a few things and um, you're not that far down the road, then maybe not that much. But if your air rights hold the key to unlocking the potential of a site in some more major way, then mega bucks. You know the same price you would pay for an existing apartment or, um, you know, we're talking thousands of dollars a foot.
0: We're about to wind this down, but I have to ask you about the shadows.
1: Yeah, the shadows were a big hot topic for a while and then people sort of stopped talking about them. Uh, Basically, as these buildings started to go up, people noticed that from the first one, 157, which was, You know only a thousand feet tall that that building was casting a shadow over central park and over a popular playground in central park so it would be engulfed in darkness um for a certain number of minutes per day that it wasn't before and you know then people realized that there were going to be a lot more tall buildings going up on that same corridor and a lot more shadows and so it became this subject of controversy. And it goes back a long time that the cause was taken up by this organization called the Municipal Arts Society, I believe. And uh, they go way back with, you know, Jackie Onassis was one of their spokespeople at one stage. Um, And it goes back even to when the Time Warner Center was built. Um, And she during during the construction of the Time Warner Center, um, they all went out into Central Park with umbrellas. and, you know, put them over their heads to sort of make the point that they were going to be in shadow because of these buildings. Um, so it was a big flashpoint in, you know, I think 2014, 2015. And then the buildings obviously were going up no matter what. So there was no point in fighting it. You know, there was, they, people didn't have any leverage to, to stop them from going up. So it sort of fell out of conversation.
0: So after you spent all this time talking about the money and where it comes from, Do you you pick up any impression about how people feel about the Chinese, the Russians, the Qataris, the Saudis, and how they deal with these deals uh, from a money standpoint?
1: You know, I talked to a lot of brokers who told me that dealing with the Chinese in particular was a completely different experience than dealing with an American buyer. Uh, Basically, the gist being that the negotiation style in China is very different. You know, you think you have a deal. When you, when you have a deal, when you've reached a conclusion, your negotiations in, in the U.S., that's it. You're ready to sign. Whereas in China, there are, you know, often several um, phases of renegotiation before you get to the end. So, there, you know, there's always a final ask and a final, final ask and a final, final, final ask.
0: What about uh, the cat? I, the cat.
1: <laughs> That's one of my favorite stories in the book. Uh, I talked to an agent who sold a Chinese family an apartment at 157, and then they said to her after the deal closed, oh, we're also looking for a place in the suburbs. Could you maybe show us something in Greenwich, Connecticut? So she found them this really great deal in Greenwich. It was, the market was not great at that time, and so she got them, like I think it was $10 million off or something. It was some crazy bargain because the, the seller had had the house on the market for a long time and couldn't get rid of it. And so she takes them for the final walkthrough uh, of the of the home. And they've demanded to buy all of the furniture and all of the finishes, including, you know, all the crystal in the bar, you know, the toilet roll in the toilet. Like <laughs> They wanted every last detail of this property. But when they go for the final walkthrough, they, you know, they sit around the table and they're about to sign the closing documents. And the family says to the broker, "Can we just talk to you outside for a moment?" She says, "Oh God, what are they? What do they want now? What, what's going to be the final, final, final ask?" <laughs> and they get they get out into the garden and um, they say, "You know, as we were walking around, our daughter really fell in love with the seller's cat, and she." She goes, oh, my God, like, I'm not getting you this cat. That's not happening. And they say, well, will you just ask. And so she goes back into the room with her tail between her legs, and she says, I am so, so, so sorry, and I'm so embarrassed to ask you this. Please just tell me to, you know, where to go. But their daughter really fell in love with your cat. Is there any way you would throw it into the deal? And the seller says, I hate that cat. Take it. <sighs>
0: Catherine Clark, (laughs) go ahead. You're going to say something.
1: I was just going to say it all worked out in the end.
0: The name of the book is (laughs) Billionaires Row, Tycoons, High Rollers, and the Epic Race to Build the World's Most Exclusive Skyscrapers. Catherine Clark works for the Wall Street Journal and deals with real estate all the time. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast.
1: Please rate and review Booknotes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.